tuned to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Welcome to this week's episode. It's really good to have you here. This week, I'd like to give you a sense of the anthropology of human sexuality, which really is just such a profound aspect of the human experience. Sexuality is a topic that the discipline has engaged with for about a hundred years. So bisexuality, anthropologists mean the beliefs and ideas that cultures have about desires and behaviors relating to erotic physical contact. Now, culture plays a big role in shaping people's ideas and behavior about sexual desire. So you might consider how American culture, through things like Cosmopolitan Magazine, Playboy Magazine, sex ed classes, and even Victoria's Secret ads, how these things uh, have shaped American ideas about sexuality today. Cultures also maintain mechanisms to regulate sexuality. So things like age of consent, restrictions placed on prostitution and pornography, as well as polygamy bans, all speak to how society attempts to put limits or controls in place on sexuality. Now, I I think one thing that strikes um, uh, students of anthropology I think is just how diverse human sexuality is. It is so much more flexible than the fixed heterosexual, homosexual binary in Western culture. Western ideas about sexuality have really been steeped in Victorian ideals that connected sexuality to Christianity, which viewed sex strictly for procreation and not pleasure. Hayden Brown's book, Advice to Single Women, which uh, was published in the very late 19th century uh, as an early self-help book, was actually recently rediscovered uh, by the British Library in 2015. It's a very interesting text uh, because it embodies Victorian period ideals about gender, sexuality, as well as marriage. So it's a really interesting read. Um, You can take a look at some of the excerpts that I have for you in the link that I'm providing in the Digging Deeper section, if you're so inclined. But these Victorian ideals that we're talking about began to fall from favor uh, just about at at the beginning of the 20th century. Richard von Kraft Ebing's Psychopathia Sexualis Um, uh, slowly but ultimately became a very curious kind of book after it was translated into English in 1892. The book talked to readers about the idea of having sex for pleasure rather than strictly for reproductive intercourse. Now this was a radical idea yet to be embraced by mainstream society even though sex for, ple- uh, sex for pleasure uh, has probably gone on since the dawn of humankind. So it's not that sex for pleasure never happened before in Western society. It's that it never happened openly in polite society. X-rated erotica films made their silver screen debut in the first decade of the 20th century. Newspapers, photographs, books, and even establishments like restaurants and bars uh, also capitalized on the sex for pleasure concept, which proved uh, very lucrative for business. Mae West uh, was this wildly popular American actress 
uh, in the early 20th century. And she really got American society to think more openly about sex, especially sex for fun. Now, she was a movie star, uh, but she also uh, wrote and produced plays. And some of uh, the titles of her works include Sex, The Drag, The Wicked Age, The Constant Sinner, and Pleasure Man. So I think you can see how, just based on the titles of her plays, she was a rather salacious figure for her time. Her work broke uh, the prudish Victorian ideals about sexuality. So I'll go ahead and link you to a montage of her movie scenes in the Digging Deeper section so that you can get more of a sense of the kind of character uh, that she was if you'd like. But it was anthropologist Margaret Mead who I think really turned anthropology on to the study of cross-cultural sexuality uh, with two of her books. The first being uh, one titled Coming of Age in Samoa, published in 1928. Uh, this book explored the sex lives of young adults in Samoa. And her later book, published in 1935, titled Sex and Temperament, really furthered the notion that culture shapes both gender and sexuality, uh, which is a view that has become fundamental, I think, very foundational to how anthropologists look at both of these topics. So in general, uh, Mead's work really challenged the assumption that Western sexuality was practiced universally. I think her work also got people thinking about how sex is a focal part of the human experience as well as really just how diverse human sexuality is all around the globe. So really, I want you to get this sense that just how uh, gender is flexible cross-culturally, as we talked in the previous episode, so too is sexuality. There are a lot of really interesting case studies on sexuality in anthropology. And what I'd like to do uh, for the rest of the podcast is highlight two favorites here. So sex tourism uh, has become a multi-billion dollar industry in the modern globalized age. Uh, Denise Brennan's brilliant ethnography titled What's Love Got to Do With It, which was published in 2004, uh, looks into the lives of sex workers in the Dominican Republic. The beach town uh, where her ethnography takes place in has really attracted a lot of white men sex tourists who are drawn in to the town by these very alluring internet advertisements. So in her ethnography, Brennan explains how European companies are the ones who are creating these all-inclusive uh, package deals for customers that bundle basically everything, including airfare, accommodation, meals, uh, and of course, adult entertainment. However, it turns out that very little of this money trickles into uh, the Dominican Republic's local economy. So local workers usually labor uh, here as sex workers or really in entry-level low-pay positions, while foreign Europeans are the ones who occupy the higher pay, uh, more desirable management roles. Um, Brennan's ethnography really reveals I think how young women from the Dominican Republic migrate to these luxury hotels within cities in search of economic opportunities that certainly might include sex work uh, for wealthy men 
who want this sort of exotic, native, uh, kind of sexual encounter. Women engage in this line of work thinking that they'll be able to save enough money to escape poverty, uh, provide a better life for their family, or maybe even acquire a European visa by marrying a John. Uh, Very sadly, Brennan uh, explains how this usually does not materialize. Um, And to further the situation, prostitution is technically illegal in the Dominican Republic. And Brennan tells us how police uh, target and harass these women who are really just trying to carve out a better life for themselves and their families. So from Brennan's ethnography, we really get a nice look at how globalization both shapes and fulfills men's fantasies, but at the same time, how globalization hardens the structural inequalities that sex workers face. I did link you to a very short documentary in the Digging Deeper section uh, that is set in the sex work industry in the Dominican Republic. Um, So that may be of interest uh, to anybody who'd like to look into this issue just a little bit more. Bobby Benedicto's piece titled Under Bright Lights, which came out in 2014, is another example of a compelling ethnography. Benedicto is taking us to a bit of a different place, though, than Brennan did. Uh, Benedicto takes us to the gay scene in Manila, Philippines. I have to tell you, I really do love reading Bobby Benedicto's writing because, uh, like Sienna Craig, his prose are simply eloquent to me. He's a very articulate writer who, through his own written word, I think very effectively ushers his readers into the so-called bright light scene or the gay scene. So throughout the piece, we see Benedicto almost reminiscing, reminiscing on things like, quote, drinking cocktails under clouds of cigarette smoke uh, while he watched uh, men pose against dim violet backlighting. He also describes the stench of wet markets, even though it's kind of a gross and nasty thing. He almost describes it so eloquently uh, while he's stuck in rush hour traffic in the center of city, uh, the center of, of the city, rather. So he says, quote, you had no choice but to hold your breath or inhale the smoke and the stench of raw meat, which seeped through the windows and mingled with the odor of air conditioning, end quote. But late at night, well after rush hour, the bright lights came on, and the streets were less congested. Stray cars, who we get the sense are driven by uh, these wealthy gay men who are Benedicto's informants, speed very quickly by the most unsavory bits of the city, like these wet markets, blurring them into something that's sort of amorphous or unrecognizable. Benedicto says, and I quote him here, the frustration and introspection of daytime traffic were replaced by the thrill of the freedom to accelerate and the anticipation of the destination, end quote. I believe that there are a couple different ways to read Benedicto's piece, but maybe one of the ways to read it is as a story about the intersection of gay identity and class privilege. There's really such a stark contrast uh, between the somber, dark, and impoverished cityscape and that of the posh, uh, almost ultra-luxe, bright light scene that's enjoyed by Benedicto and his rich friends, who actually double as his informants. 
the poorer recesses of gay life, Benedicto writes, are, quote, the world of strip clubs and callboys who are male prostitutes. These were somber places frequented mostly by older queers, end quote. But he goes on to tell us that for fun, on nights when their overprivileged felt mundane and boring, Benedicto and his friends would visit these spaces once in a while for the fun of it. He then brings his readers to the morning after scene of a four-star hotel sweet callboy party. Uh, party. So to me, uh, the scene that he describes in this hotel is just flocked with the vestiges of spent money. It's a scene of musty sheets where sex was served uh, the night before, thick terry cloth bathrobes, empty bottles of booze on the sofa table, and overflowing ashtrays at her bedside. On the street, poor children seem to sporadically beg Benedicto and his companions for money as they wait in line for clubs or uh, sit idly in rush hour traffic. The last scene that we're taken to is really kind of symbolic, I think. Benedicto's uh, party is in a car, stopped in gridlock, when a young boy approaches them, uh, asking for some spare change. His group ignores uh, the begging child, who in response uttered a local derogatory term for homosexual. The word bakla carries the connotation of the poor, sleazy kind of gay scene that Benedicto and his friends really tried very hard to distinguish themselves from. But after the sting of the insult wore off uh, just a moment later, one of Benedicto's friends actually joked that they should have run the little boy over. Uh, so I like Benedicto's ethnography because it demonstrates how the, uh, the Manila gay scene, in a way, kind of reinforces hegemonic ideas about class privilege. In fact, we get a sense that to be the right kind of gay, or maybe even the gay ideal we can say, means to occupy a certain degree of class privilege. Now, before we wrap up, there are some really interesting supplementary resources in the Dig Deeper section for this week, um, some of which I have already mentioned in this episode, but what I'd like to do is highlight uh, the few that we haven't gotten to yet. Gender and sexual violence is a topic that we really have to tune into. I have a useful link to your school's policy on sexual misconduct, uh, dating violence, and procedures for reporting this kind of stuff, as well as support services. I think it's very important uh, to know uh, your school's stance on these kinds of things, to know how your school handle, handles these kinds of things. Uh, so please go ahead uh, and check out that link if you can. And lastly, in your reading this week, you're going to be learning a little bit about the so-called salarymen who frequent Japanese hostess bars. I have a short clip by the New York Times that gives you a sense of the uh, woman hostess's point of view, which is downplayed a little bit in our guest textbook. So you might want to think about the role that economy plays in a young woman's decision whether or not to become a hostess, almost sort of priming us uh, for the discussion of economy that's going to be forthcoming. On that note, we've reached the end of today's episode of Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. 
Thank you for listening. And as always, please email me if you need anything. Take good care all. Bye-bye.